So let's go ahead and let's uh, pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. And as we um, look into your word, as we look into your will and the things that you want from us, and as we think about your character, we just ask that you would, your spirit would be moving in our heart, illuminating our eyes to the truth of the text, causing us to see the sins that we need to repent of, that your spirit may empower us to live more like your son, Jesus Christ. May there be a sense of unity amongst us, all having the same mind to glorify you and to have the attitude that unless we are taught from you, we are not taught at all. We thank you so very much for everything you've blessed us with. Um, In your son's name, amen. I know it doesn't look like it up on the screen, but that's supposed to be the red for the State Farm. I, as you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for commercials. I, sometimes I like commercials more than the TV show or the movie or the sports game that I'm watching, whatever. And um, one of my favorites has to be the State Farm commercials, uh, you know, where they do the little jingle like a, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And they have all those different ones, right? And there's my favorite one was the one that looked like it was shut, shot in uh, Custer National Park where there's those guys and they're in the little car and they're driving around and all of a sudden this uh, bison comes by and starts goring the car and they're screaming and like a good neighbor, Stay Farm's there and the agent comes into the car and then he goes, say the jingle but say my office and they say the jingle and he goes to the office, right? And, and that's, how the, that's how the commercial's going. Uh, it speaks of something about what does it mean to be a good neighbor. A good neighbor is one who has advice, gives good advice, and who's there in, in a time of, of need. And obviously, as believers, we would say, well, there's more. There's more than that of being a good neighbor, right? I mean, there's more. But it's definitely not less than that, right? I mean, th- those are important traits. This morning in our text in Proverbs 14, we're going to look at some of those traits of what does it mean to be a good neighbor, or what does it mean to be like a good neighbor, right, staying with the, the theme. And we're going to see two primary things about being a good neighbor in this text. J- just because of some of the stuff we have to talk about, I wanted to cover more, but I just felt like this was the right, the right length. So the first thing that we're going to see in verse 17 through 19 is that being a good neighbor requires biblical discernment. You need to have biblical discernment. If you're going to be a good neighbor to your neighbors, and you're going to be the neighbor that God wants you to be, you must have biblical discernment. Second, what we're going to see in verses 20 and 21 is that to be a good neighbor, we have to be loving. These are non-negotiables, right? We have to be discerning, and we have to be loving. So let's go ahead and let's spend some time in Proverbs 14, and let's start in verse 17, discussing this issue of discernment. And notice how our text starts off in verse 17. It says, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. So here, it's kind of an interesting word that's used for quick-tempered man. The word itself actually means to have a small nose. That's literally what it says in the Hebrews, a small-nosed person axed foolishly. Uh, and so if you have a small nose this morning, we all know you're foolish. 
No, I'm kidding. That's not what it means. It's a metaphor, right? And so the, the idea for a temper or for anger in the Hebrew, it, it c- comes from the root of, of the nostril. So if you've ever seen anybody get angry, their nostrils flare. If you've ever seen a Looney Tunes cartoon, when you know that the person is angry, when smoke is blowing out of their nose, right? So that's the image, right? The image of, of somebody who's angry. And, and the fact that the, the, the length of the nose is short speaks to how long a person can go before that smoke comes out of their nose. So a short-tempered person means that it, they quickly explode, right? It's that they have no self-control. They quickly are angered, right? So a short nose means quick to anger. And we all know that a person who is quick to anger acts foolishly. I'm sure we've all have done things, said things, acted in a way that we weren't thinking about it. We spoke out of anger and we said something really dumb we did something really dumb. I remember one time as a kid, I got angry at my folks. I threw something at their car, and I hit perfectly the, 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 the speedometer or whatever you call that, the, the speed thing. I hit that perfect, and it's still broken to this day because it cost too much money to fix it. And they just said, well, we'll just have the smartphone on. So, and, and I feel so bad about that for my whole life, and I was just like, one moment of anger, I threw that, that rock at that one moment of anger, and now it's always there, right? Every time I get into the car, guess what I'm looking at? Yeah, the broken thing. It's t- it can't even tell us how fast we're going, right? So we've all had those experiences of, of, of acting uh, out of anger. Here, the, the idea is a person who's characterized by being quick-tempered. And then notice the next part. It says, and a man of evil devices is hated, literally a man who is willing to scheme. It has the idea of somebody who, who secretly gets together and plans to, and plots to hurt another person. That, that's the idea here. So a man who plots evil is hated. And the question is, who hates him? Who's, who hates him? Well, I, I think we could say, first of all, yeah, that, that type of, you don't win very many friends in the community when you act this way, right? obviously the people that you're conspiring against. And ultimately, we could say that God hates this type of behavior. This is not right. This is not how we're supposed to be acting. Now, notice verse 18. Verse 18 and verse 17, in my mind, kind of go together. In fact, we could even say verse 15 to verse 18 kind of acts as a, as a unit together. But notice verse 18. It says, And the naive inherit foolishness. So the word naive here again is the same word that was used up in verse 15 where it speaks of the naive person believes everything. We defined this open-mindedness not just as somebody who's willing to hear new ideas and think about it. This is a person who is open to truths and ideas or they're open to things that they think are truth and open to ideas that are found outside of God's word. Biblically here, that's a naive person. They're open to everything else other than God's word. That's what an open-minded person is. So they believe everything else. So this person that believes everything else outside of God's word, outside of Christ, what do they receive? What do they receive? They receive foolishness. They, they, they receive this, this 
particular way of living and this particular way of thinking that leads them away from the Lord, right? This is not a good inheritance. This is a terrible inheritance. This leads to death. This is what you get. And in a sense, we could say the same person in verse 17 that's quick-tempered and the same person that devises evil things would also be very closely akin, if not the brother, if not the same guy as the one who believes everything outside of God's word and inherits foolishness. Now notice how he resolves this parallelism in verse 18 and 19. It's kind of interesting. He says in the second part of verse 18, but the sensible, or we could say the one who has discernment, because that, that's really what, what he, he, that word means here. The one who has discernment, who has the honed ability to see what is right and what is wrong, that honed ability to determine between truth and error, that honed ability to make the right biblical decisions. That person receives an honor and a prestige, and that's the idea of the crown. So he's crowned with knowledge. As we've been studying the book of Proverbs, we've seen this idea of knowledge numerous times. And I maintain that for the majority of the time that it's been used so far, it is not necessarily referred to, I just know something. I just know the content of something. The, the, the idea of knowledge means I know someone. I know the source of that content. Here, knowledge would speak of knowing God. So the one who has discernment is one who grows in their relationship with the Lord. They, they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a discerning person is one who makes the right kind of decision, sees truth and error, and, and, and they start from God's word, they start from the character of God, and as they think through their life through those lenses, they then make the right kind of decisions. So therefore, then, the honor is that they're bestowed with this concept of they know God. They're knowers of God. Notice how this is contrasted with the guy in verse 17 and verse 18. These people act foolishly, they're acting away, they're walking away from the Lord, they're devising evil plans. And let's be honest, who would want a neighbor that's quick-tempered? I mean, raise your hand, let's take a poll, raise your hand right now if you want your neighbor to be a hothead and get angry at every little thing you do. It's amazing. No one raises their hand. How about this? How, How many of you want a neighbor who devises evil plans against you? Who wants that? Show of hands. Ah, I see somebody in the back. No, I'm kidding. Who who wants somebody that believes everything other than God's word as a neighbor? No, you don't want that, guys, right? So as a believer, we must realize, okay, these are not things that make for good neighbors. What makes for a good neighbor is one who is discerning, one who stops and thinks and weighs, one who makes the right kind of judgment. That's the type of neighbor. Now, now notice what he then says in, in verse 19. It's really fascinating. He says in verse 19, The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Now, just first of all, just think about this. You have a guy who's trying to undermine people. The question is, why is he trying to undermine people? We could say probably because he's trying to get ahead of other people, right? right? I mean, I, I think that's a safe assessment. So here's this guy who's trying to get ahead. What's going to happen to this one? The principle is he will bow down to the one who's 
showing discernment, right? Here the one that's crowned with discernment is the one that is being bowed down. He's the one on top. The other one has to be his servant. As I think about Solomon as he's writing this, uh, we have to remember that Solomon did not write in a vacuum. He has a family. He had a history. He lived in a country. He was king of a country. And if you read through the book of First and Second Samuel, um, on Sunday nights, that's what we've been doing, just taking a book of the Bible each week and just kind of doing a survey. So past couple weeks we finished the book of first and second Samuel. we watched this story of david unfold and numerous times there were people that were trying to take the throne away from david and what ended up happening they their their plots were 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 put to shame they had to grovel for their life they were put the they, they were killed who was the one on top it was david that was on top he was the lord's anointed and so solomon as he's thinking of even of his dad's life thinking about his brother who tried to take away the throne from his dad. Then he thought, then I had, even in his own life, he had people that were trying to take away the throne from him, and they were put to shame. He's thinking about this principle that there are people who plot evil, and he sees it over and over again how they are put to shame and how God exalts those who are good, right? He sees this over and over again. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, that's kind of cool, right? It's kind of cool that the evil bow down before the good. And then I had this thought, well, how come I don't see that as much as I think I should see that today? Has God just stopped doing this? Is this this something that he just did for David because David was so awesome and unique and he doesn't do that for us? Now, first of all, remember this, that this is a principle. It's not a promise. It's not a promise that if you do good, this will always happen. All of your enemies will bow down at your feet. That's not what this is saying. The principle is all things being equal, normally those who have discernment, those who are following the law, those who are uh, being obedient to God's word, they're honest, they will rise to the top and they normally are the rulers of the society. So those who have discernment are normally placed in positions of power. That's the principle. And we as believers understand that there's another principle at work, that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. But there's one other principle, one other truth, one other promise that when I saw this, I thought about immediately. When it says the evil will bow down before the good, the question is, who is good other than God? Who is good other than Jesus Christ? Theologically, all evil ones will bow down to Jesus Christ. Right? Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. So it's a principle, but we do realize, theologically, this will happen. We might not see it as much as we would like to see it. That's just, the, that's just what it means to live in a fallen world. But someday in the future, and that, this future cannot come soon enough, someday in the future, this will be the rule. Notice in Philippians 2, verse 10. Right, speaking of the, the, the humiliation of Christ, of how he added on humanity, here was God, fully God, fully man, who's come down, lived this perfect life, died on the cross for sinners, right? The, the offer that anyone who believes and places their trust solely on Jesus Christ shall have salvation. This one that, that he's talking about, who was, who, who was obedient, 
and, 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 and he, he added on humanity, is now uh, exalted to a name higher above all other names. And then in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's think about this. One day, the evil will bow down to the good. I know that there's many here that when we think of this text, because I know many of you have said it, you said, yes, every knee will bow. Some of us bow willingly now, and someday others will not bow willingly. (laughs) They will be forced to bow. But they will bow, right? I think that's incredible. I think that's incredible. So back here in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 19, the principle is those, those who have discernment rise to leadership, right, in a society. It's true. Ultimately, Christ is the one whom everyone will bow down to, and he is the good one. And notice that the, wickeds are at, the wicked are at the gate of the righteous, meaning that it's the righteous who are the ones who are the judges. And so the idea is those who have discernment get the honor of knowing God, and they get the honor, society, as far as society goes, as being in places of judgment, being in places of leadership, being in places of power. Having discernment means that people like you and trust you. You're trustworthy. They trust your judgment. So a person of discernment then would be placed in a place where they have to make judgment calls, and people go, yes, I trust them. Isn't this the kind of neighbor that you would want, right? One that makes good judgment calls? As you're living next to them or you're living in the same town, they're making these great judgment calls? Now, as as believers, we realize that it's much more than just little judgment calls. We're called to judge our life based off of God's character and off of his will that's revealed in his word. As we spend time in his word, we come to know what is good, what is right. We come to know how God would act and then we act in consistency with that. As believers, that's, that's what we're trying to achieve here with discernment. So to be a good neighbor, you need to have discernment. And it takes time and it takes practice. Now, there's another aspect of being a good neighbor, which is found in the next verse, in verse 20 and 21. It's kind of an interesting two verses. It says, but the poor is hated even by his neighbor. But those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is the one who is gracious to the poor. In my mind, once again, you have to take these two verses together. The first one in verse 20, it's kind of interesting because it almost kind of gives uh, a description of how society normally acts, right? And then verse 21 says, that's how it is, but this is how it should be, right? This is how society is. But the next one is, but this is how it should be. Yes, it is true that society largely hates the poor, right? The poor is hated even by his neighbor, even to the one who has close proximity to him. Now, Solomon doesn't go into why this person is poor. There's numerous reasons why people can be poor. Some of those reasons are because of sin. Some of those other reasons have nothing to do with sin, right? So he doesn't go into why this guy's become poor, 
But here's this poor person. What we do know is that he is hated even by his neighbor. But then guess what? The same guy, right? Those who love the rich are many, meaning that the poor are often marginalized and many people want to be attached to rich people because rich people have a lot of things. They have a lot of power, right? So the idea is if if I want to be powerful and influential in society, then I'm going to hook my wagon to the people who are already rich, powerful, affluent. That's the way things are, right? That's how we see it. There's probably even some of that even in our own minds, right, as, as we think about things. I don't know if you've ever been in a neighborhood that was poorer, and for no other reason than just the way it looked, you thought, I need to get out of here, <laughs> right? This is, not a, this is not a fun place. But notice what Solomon says should be the response. And it's kind of interesting because it's not in the tone of a, of a principle, this is, a, this is very black and white for the book of Proverbs. It, it, it almost kind of leaves the sense of a principle because he makes this declaration, and it's an incredible declaration. He who despises his neighbor sins. Right? This is not a principle. Right? This is, this is the way it is. Right? He moves from a principle to a law type of stance. Here it is. You despise your neighbor, you sin. I guess the question would be, other than the text says it, why is it that despising your neighbor is a sin? Why is it a sin to despise your neighbor? Now, there's a lot of reasons, I think. I think the first would be because he just said it. So regardless of whether I fully understand the implications or the theological framework behind it, right? It's wrong for me to despise my neighbor. But I think the Bible has a lot of other explanations that help us understand why this is so egregious. First reason that I could think of just off the top of my head of why it's so egregious to despise your neighbor is simply this. Your neighbor is made in the image of God. And because he's made in the image of God, he or she's made in the image of God, that means I must treat them with respect. I must treat them with dignity, right? I must treat them. There's something special, right? So a lot could be said about the subject, but quickly, just go to Genesis 1. This is the the place where it talks about this idea of us being made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now here, I think... God is talking to himself, to the other members of the Trinity. That's what I mean. He's talking to the other members of the Trinity. I don't think he's consulting the rest of creation. No, because that doesn't make sense. I don't think he's talking to the angels. That doesn't make sense. I think he's talking to himself, to the other members of the Trinity. Let us make man according to our image, according to our likeness. Now, there have been some that have really tried to dig in deep about the difference between image and likeness, as if one thing fell in the fall, but the other things retained, and all sorts of craziness. And I think that leads to hermeneutical gymnastics myself. I think he's basically just saying the same thing. There's probably a slight difference and a little bit of a different nuance between them, but essentially it's you're made in the likeness of God, right? 
And notice what he then says. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over everything that creeps on the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here you have the, the first aspect of our being made in the image of God is that we're made in the image of God. Second, there's this idea of sovereignty. We're ruling, right? He's commanded us to rule, to be stewards. And then notice in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, meaning that man is created in the image of God and women are created in the image of God. And the question is, what does that really mean to be made in the image of God? That's a deep subject. It takes a long time. If, if I had to define it, I would say this, that man, human beings, are like God more than any other creature. In fact, as a human, I am the closest to God that a creature can be. Right? That's what it is. I, as far as a creature can be, in the likeness of God, we are the closest. It is interesting that none of the other parts of creation are said to be made in the image of God. It is only humans. Only humans have this incredible, incredible capacity to be like God. We are made in the image of God. And because of this, there is a dignity and there's a respect that we should show other human beings because they are also made in the image of God. Even if they're fallen... They still have the image of God, and therefore it deserves, they deserve respect. So why is it so wrong? One reason it's wrong to despise our neighbors because they're made in the image of God. And to dis disrespect something that's made in the image of God is ultimately a disrespect against him. A second reason, I would say, is go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Let's just start in verse 19 of Galatians 5. It says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Everybody can see them. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Notice this next. Enmity, strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. All of those words, by the way, sound a lot like synonyms that we would use when we would say what is it what does it mean to despise your neighbor that that is that is what the flesh does the flesh naturally does that right there's a part of us that that naturally gravitates towards these types of things right and drunkenness and crowding and, and and things like these which i forewarned you just as i have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here, the idea of practice such things is to practice such things without any restraint. They're identified by these things. A believer is not identified by our sin. We're identified by Christ. A believer, there is a struggle to do what is right, right? We have the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us do good deeds. This is describing, Paul uses this descriptor as someone who is given to these practices, and they're not even trying to fight these practices by means of the Holy Spirit. We've known people that don't know Jesus, and they're trying to stop 
their strife in their families the best they can. They can't because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't because they don't know Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. But notice what he then says to us as believers in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, notice this first one, is love and then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice that as Paul's listing out the fruit, and remember, we, we, we said that the way the grammar is written here is that all of those, the love, joy, peace, all of those are one fruit. So it's not like somebody over here is a love tree and someone over there is a peace tree, right? It, the fruit of the Spirit is all of those. But notice what he describes first. It's love. Uh, an evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit is love. Christ constantly says, they will know that you are my disciple by your love. The opposite of love is hatred and despising and bitterness, right? So, why is it so wrong? It's so wrong because it demonstrates that if I'm despising my neighbor, then I'm living in the flesh and not by the power of the Spirit. That's what it means. There can be no other option. Ultimately, why is it wrong to despise our neighbor? For me, I think God loves my neighbor. I'm supposed to be like him. Therefore, I'm supposed to do the things he does. Go with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. To despise our neighbor is a sin. Notice how, notice, notice how God acts here. Let's start in verse 43 of Matthew 5. He says, you have heard it was said. It's kind of interesting, the Sermon on the Mount, and how Jesus, what he's talking about. He's talking about a lot of stuff, okay? There's a lot of stuff he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he's giving this argument, and it's a pretty extensive argument. I would say one of the major things about this argument is to demonstrate to his audience who is there, right there, that they have a lack of righteousness. There's a sense that you could say, well, I've never murdered somebody. Therefore, I'm righteous. I've never done this. Therefore, I'm righteous. And Jesus goes through and says, actually, that's a really bad standard of righteousness. Right? You are actually not righteous. One of the other things that he does here is he's also establishing something for the kingdom, which is a whole other discussion. But one of the other things that he's doing as well is he's taking popular teachings of the time and then says, this is what you've heard. Here's what the scripture says. And here's the correct interpretation. In essence, we could say Jesus is expositing the law. And we see that here in verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said. By who? By the rabbis. The rabbis have said this. You shall love your neighbor. That's from the scriptures, right? That's what it says in Leviticus, right? That's what it says in Deuteronomy. You shall love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor. And then notice what they added. And hate your enemy. Notice verse 44. But I say to you. So Jesus is reinterpreting, saying they got the interpretation wrong. They added something there, right? They added, and you shall hate your neighbor. Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not what it says. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why? Verse 45, so that you may be the sons of your father who's in heaven. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that if you love, that is how you become a Christian. You become a Christian on the basis of faith off the person and work of Jesus Christ. From that flows a particular lifestyle, flows righteousness that comes from the Holy Spirit, right? We just talked about that in Galatians 5. We just saw that. The fruit of the Spirit. So this is something that's a product of the Holy Spirit. So here, when he says, so that you may be the sons of the Father, he's not saying do this in order to become a son. He's saying you do this because you are a son, right? That's what he's saying. So there's this expectation. The expectation of us who are children of God is that we act according to the family rules. So notice what he says. He says, who is, uh, uh, I'll just start at the beginning of the verse. So that you may be like your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Now you think about that in the ancient times, agriculture was, well, today agriculture is still a big deal, right? We need the sun for a lot of stuff. So who gets the sunshine? According to this verse, everybody, right? This is part of God's common grace. His common grace is that he, he does good things to everybody. So as a believer, I'm supposed to be like him. I'm supposed to do what he does. If he sends the sun to everyone so that everyone can live, then there's a sense that I need to be gracious to my enemy. That's what he's saying. God's a God of grace. The, the evil don't deserve the sun, but he still gives it. It's his grace. And then notice, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Same thing. They need the rain for their crops. Do they deserve the rain? No. None of us deserve the rain, but he still sends it, right? Because he's gracious, because he's merciful. So the, the response for us is to love our neighbors means that we're supposed to be gracious and loving and forgiving. So notice what he says in verse 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Kind of an interesting argument. If you just love the people that love you, well, yeah, the unrighteous do that, right? The unrighteous do that. In fact, it's amazing. Um, You know, I think American sports fans are pretty bad, but then when you watch all the other across the world, then you go, eh, actually, we're not that bad. Um, There are people who get behind soccer teams in England and they will, if you wear another team in the store and they see you, they will cut you. And they won't even think twice about it because you're wearing a different team. But they're really good friends to the people on, who wear the same color, right? That, okay, we get that. Yeah, what, what advantage do you have if you just love the people that love you? Right? You're not acting like God. You're just acting like everybody. Then notice the next one in verse 47. If you greet your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Of course they do the same. But that's not what God is calling us to do. That's not what Christ is calling us to do. That's what is. This is what ought to be. Verse 48. Therefore, you... He's not concerned with the Gentiles. He's concerned with you, the one who's reading. You. You are to be perfect. Now, the the tendency here for a lot of people and a lot of commentators is to substitute this word perfect 
for the word holiness. And granted, yes, we are commanded to be holy, right? First Peter, it says we are to be holy because God is holy. And, and the tendency is to, to insert that word, but that's not what Jesus says. He calls us to perfection. Now, that's a little bit different than the call to holiness, isn't it? To call to perfection means that there's really nothing wrong that needs to be improved or, for, or asked of forgiveness of, right? It's a sense of completeness. Notice that completeness is tied to his graciousness, and we are to be gracious to those who hate us. That's the call. The call is to maturity. The call is to completeness. The call is to be exactly like him. We are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Now think of this. In, in, in the book of Proverbs, it says, he who hates his neighbor, to, to hate your neighbor, to despise your neighbor is sin. That's your neighbor. Here we see that Jesus says, you're supposed to love your enemies because, it is, because that's what God does. We're supposed to be like God. This is why it's a sin, because it's opposite of the character of God. And when we act that way, we're not acting as we should. We're not acting like God. So, notice what, what he also says here in Proverbs 14. If we could go back, Proverbs 14. So, to, to hate your neighbor, right? If we despise our neighbor, that's a sin. And then notice, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Now, happy here, uh, don't read in the modern idea of happy, <laughs> Right? Because some of us could read this and go, yeah, no, I really feel good when I give. And you do feel good when you do what's right. And you do feel good when you help somebody. I'm not denying that. But I don't think that should be the believer's motivation. I do things because it feels good. That just sounds like a really weird type of hedonism, right? That's not, we're not called to that. It's right because it feels good. It does feel good. I think that's an added benefit. And when he says happy here, the word happy is not that I'm happy and joyful. The sense is that it's, I'm blessed, right? That's the idea here. I'm blessed. And, and to be blessed is, is this idea of God is, looks favorably upon that. I, I do this because God looks favorably when I help those who need help. That's my motivation, to honor, to glorify God. I want him to be honored and glorified. I want him to be pleased with my life. I, I, want, him to be, I, I want him to look at me and, and say, look, he's, he's attempting to be obedient. I'm, I'm pleased with what he's doing. That, that's the motivation. The motivation isn't that I feel good, though that's a great benefit. But notice that happy is the one, blessed is the one. God likes it when we are gracious. Now notice that phrase, gracious. We're gracious to the poor doesn't necessarily mean that we go around the world feeding all the poor, but we are gracious to them, right? Sometimes we can't feed everybody who needs food, but we're gracious to them. We're kind to them. We help when we can with them, right? You know, it's interesting, uh, just thinking of Galatians. Remember that passage in, when Paul was talking about when he met with the, the elders in Jerusalem and then he was sent out to go around and preach? And, and they added this little tag of, but don't forget the poor. And then Paul says, which I was eager to do. It's interesting, in the early church, they didn't have a lot of outreach programs. They didn't have all of that. They didn't have, 
one of the things that the church was known for was they just fed hungry people and they loved them. They just, they just had a great love for each other and they went out and they fed poor people who were forgotten by society. And it was that evidence that when people tried to bring a charge against them and they said about the churches, well, look, they're trying to overthrow the government. Everybody said, how? They're giving away all their stuff. What are they doing? We can't... And in fact, many of them said, I kind of like these people. These people are nice and friendly and loving and warm. I think the modern church has lost that, that sense, right, of evangelism. We've lost that sense of love. We've lost that sense of being like Christ. I would say that ultimately, though, if you're going to love somebody and be gracious to somebody, it starts with the gospel. We need to be constantly sharing the gospel. Not, not, as, a, not as a way of just filling a quota because you have to, but just because you're so enamored with the person and work of Jesus. You're so enamored and overcome by the grace of God that you just say to somebody, look at what I have. Look at what Jesus has done for me. I love you enough that I want you to experience the same love and grace that I have, right? The motivation is not because we have to fill a quota, but it's because of the mercy and grace of God that we want Jesus to be honored and glorified and worshiped. So this is what it means to be a good neighbor, at least an aspect of what it means to be a good neighbor, that we have discernment and that we show love to others. As I was thinking about it this morning, I, I thought during COVID that there was plenty of opportunities where we've had to be good neighbors. And I feel like this church has generally been pretty good to our neighbors. And I feel as I look around the world, it saddens me to see how many people are becoming unneighborly, right? I mean, that's kind of putting it really nicely, unneighborly. And it's really easy for us to look at what they're doing and go, I'm going to respond in kind. Very easy. Very easy for us to return that way, to look at them that way. I think that the advice from this text would be, no, we need to be loving. We need to be discerning. We need to be about Jesus, right? All those other things... They're secondary, thirdary. The most important thing is Jesus and worshiping Jesus. The most important thing is acting out of love, right? That's the part that's, that's the most important. So my advice from this text is let's go out and let's show good judgment, good biblical judgment, have biblical discernment, and let's have love that's not found in the world but it's found by Christ. And let's love one another And let's love our neighbors. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your mercy that you've given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We just ask that as we leave this place and as we go back to our homes and we walk amongst our neighbors, that we would be discerning and that we would love them as you love them. I thank you for everyone who's here, and I just ask for a a good rest of the day. I ask that you would bring us back safely tonight as we...
continue to learn from your word. And then tomorrow that we would have a good, a good Memorial Day. We are very thankful, Father, that you have protected us through various ways. And one of the ways that you have protected us is through men and women who are willing to be neighborly and put their life on the line for our freedom and to protect us. And we are so very thankful for them. And we ask, Father, that tomorrow would be a day where we first and foremost honor you and uh, that we would be mindful and thankful for your protection through uh, the military and those who have worked in the military. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.